The Secret Library podcast has been a labor of love since 2016. We are most grateful to our Patreon supporters who help reduce the cost of production for the show. To help the podcast continue and get behind-the-scenes info as well as extra solo episodes, check out patreon.com secretlibrary. Please also visit secretlibrarypodcast.com slash review and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which really helps us reach a wider audience. Thank you so much for all your kind support, incredible messages, and belief in the show. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 3, The Nourished Writer. My guest today is Jacqueline Winspear. She was born and raised in the county of Kent, England. Following higher education at the University of London's Institute of Education, Jacqueline worked in academic publishing, in higher education, and in marketing communications in the UK. She emigrated to the US in 1990, where she ultimately pursued a lifelong dream to be a writer. She became a regular contributor to journals covering international education and travel and published articles in the Washington Post, Huffington Post, and the Daily Beast, among others. Her first novel, Maisie Dobbs, was a national bestseller and received an array of accolades, including the New York Times Notable Book 2003, a Publishers Weekly Top 10 Mystery 2003, and a Book Sense Top 10 Selection. In addition, the novel was nominated for seven awards, including the Edgar for Best Novel, only the second time a first novel was nominated in this category. Jacqueline has now published 14 novels in the Maisie Dobbs series, a standalone novel, The Care and Management of Lies, and her memoir, This Time Next Year We'll Be Laughing, is out now. I had such fun speaking to Jacqueline Winspear to discuss one of the Maisie Dobbs series, as well as What Would Maisie Do?, a really fun project she put out at the same time, and was thrilled to know that her memoir, This Time Next Year, Will Be Laughing, has there ever been a better title for this moment? Um, Hearing that that was out meant I got to speak to her again, which is always such a delight So many things about Jacqueline that inspire me. One is that she came to writing fiction not as a 20-something. She came in her 40s to writing, and it didn't feel like a foregone conclusion to write that novel. But there was a story that was insisting on being written, and she went for it. So I admire her so much for that. And one of the beautiful things as a longtime fan of the Maisie Dobbs series was reading this memoir and seeing where some of the seeds of the situations and scenarios that evolved into fiction in Maisie Dobbs came from. Her story and her family's story is remarkable. And it is particularly meaningful in this moment as we face so many challenges. I love hearing stories about people who face challenges and come through the other side in different parts of history, different eras. And I know that both hearing her discuss writing this memoir as well as reading it will inspire you as well. I'm delighted to introduce back to the show, Jacqueline Winsphere. Hey, Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's just terrific of you to have me on the show. It was such fun last time I had to come back for another go round. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And you win the award for the best book title for 2020, (laughs) because if we ever needed to read a book called This Time Next Year, we'll be laughing. It is right now. And, you know, it wasn't even planned that way. I mean, I've had that title in my head, obviously, for years. And as you know, you've read the book since childhood. I mean, that was a mantra in our household. (laughs) I think your dad was channeling what we needed way back when you were little. I think he was. Yeah, he always seemed to know what we needed, you know. And it was that sense of, um, you know, throwing your line out into the future. And it's, you know, the grappling hook as I said in the book, goes onto the rock of tomorrow and you can kind of pull yourself in. 
So, you know, suddenly, even at the worst of times, you think, you know what, this time next year, everything could have changed and it could be better. And um, I think there's a lot of people holding on to that right now. It's such a beautiful thought. And I think it also is one that I'm wondering how it played out for you in your desire to be a writer, because one of the really wonderful threads in this book is your wanting to be a writer at a young age and then getting distracted in a way and convinced into taking a slightly different path for a while. And I'm wondering if there was a way that you threw a grappling hook into the future in a way, holding on to the idea of writing, or was it always there in the background and then you came back to it later? That's a really good question. And and I'm not entirely sure I knew at times. I just knew that when I was a child, um, I made the decision to be a writer based upon a house that I saw and was lucky enough to see into, which I describe in the book. And it was um, a big sort of declaration. You know, declarations are very, very powerful speech forms and saying, I want to be a writer. That's what I'm going to be when I grow up. And of course, for my mother, you know, who was, um, you know, money was always, and being gainfully employed was always something really important in our household. So straight away, you know, when I was five or six years old, it was, well, you'll need another string to your bow, you know, and it was, you're going to have to find another way because you don't want to be a starving artist in a garret. And so there was that. And then, you know, obviously at school, if you pronounce you wanted to be a writer, everybody would laugh um, because it wasn't gainful employment. (laughs) And I guess there were I, 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 I tell you what it was, I always saw writers as people on big pedestals that I looked up to. And there was a point where I could not see myself in that place. I didn't know how you got from being where I was, from being me to being a writer. I didn't know how you would do that professionally. And my parents, I mean, God bless them, they, they didn't know how to, to say to me, well, you could start off by doing this or doing that because it was well outside their frame of reference. Their frame of reference was having to leave school at 13 or 14 and getting and being sent to work in a factory or whatever. So it's outside their frame of reference. So they couldn't advise me. And then I think I just held on to it. And there was a point, and it was round about 37 when I thought, if I don't do this, I will be an if only woman. And I didn't want to get older being an if only woman. Oh, if only I'd done this, if only I'd done that. I, I just. And, and I just wanted to take the risk. So I did. And I started work, you know, literally being a journalist at 37 uh, and having a day job because you need that second string to your bow. And I just held on to it. But there was another little story. And that was that um, at one point I, I went to work in publishing because I thought, okay, get near books. At least I'm close. I didn't spend very long in trade publishing. So that's, you know, and I was only 21, 22 when I did, no, 23. But I remember one day I had to take something down to the post room and it was something that had to go out, something important. And it was probably to an editor or something. And it was in the bowels of the the earth sort of thing in in this office in Fitzroy Square. Readers who know my series will recall Fitzroy Square. And there was a a guy called Morris who ran the post room. And I, I used to love to chat to Morris. And as I was chatting to him, you know, he's putting the different mail that had come in into the slots for different departments. And every now and again, he'd look at something and sling it. And as he slung it, it landed in a great big sack that was kind of in a frame on the wall. So it was open like a basketball net, but it was a big sack. And I said, Morris, what are you doing? What are you doing with those? Why are you just slinging those big envelopes? He said, oh, that's where people send us in their manuscripts. He said, we just sling them in there. He said, and then <laughs> if one of the girls in editorial is a bit bored or she hasn't come, got much to do, she'll come down and rake through to see if there's anything interesting worth reading. <sighs> and I remember, I remember thought, thinking, I don't stand a chance at this business. Just, just, just. Yeah, I don't stand a chance because, of course, I really wanted to write the novel, although I didn't know which novel I wanted to write. <clears throat> and, of course, I was 45 when I started writing my first novel. For, actually, yeah, 45 when I started writing my first novel. And, oh, that's uh, so great. Although I had already 
written a first draft of a memoir, which is nothing like the memoir that has just been published. It was very, very, very different. I think a lot tamer, to tell you the truth. Um, Interesting. This, this one isn't very tame in places. <laughs> well, I think, yes, to speak to, of course, your parents had no frame of reference in terms of what it would take to become a published author, but what they yes. did give and what was such a satisfying thing to read is stories that found their way into your fiction, albeit in transformed, you know, a transformed process. So as a longtime reader of your series, it was really fun to read these anecdotes and say, oh, that's where she got the bit about painting the flame retardant or, you know, other things that happened to your parents. And I'm wondering what it was like, because there is a way that we can transform and disguise the sources of the material if we take things from that we know from our lives and put it into fiction. Mm. And to go from a tamer memoir to a less tame memoir, how was it working with the direct source material of your life and being, from what I could tell, quite honest about how you felt about all of it? Um. I think you don't know, or I didn't know, how I would feel until I had done it. And that is, has been a really interesting process because I wanted to tell those stories because it took me a while to realize that some of them were quite unusual, some of the things that my parents did. And, and just to backtrack a bit, one of, mm. I, I just want to add that one of the things my parents really did to encourage me in writing, my mum bought me a notebook every Saturday from ever since, you know, I was a toddler to, to even scribble in or whatever, and then later write little stories. She, you know, that was my, that was my Saturday thing. But about the writing a memoir and, you know, the, the impact of that, I think it, my parents were great. My family, I've got a lot of good oral storytellers. Everybody's got a story. So you pick up on that storytelling gene, I think. But also there were stories that I came to realize, as I said, were quite unusual. The fact that my parents lived with Romani gypsies, um, uh, that we would probably prefer to call travelers or most of them would prefer to be known as travelers now. Um, and, and the jobs that my parents did in the war and their experiences and their attitudes about the world around them, they said something. And I think it was just the wanting to take nuggets of that and realizing so many of those stories, it's like a seedling. It wasn't the whole story that I could work with to create fiction. It was a seedling. It was kindling. And I just had to add to it, add the fuel to the fire. And regarding what that does to me as a writer, um, you know, I wrote the stories as I knew them to be in my heart, the things that I observed, the stories I heard. And of course, those good and bad times that we endured. It was only after I wrote the memoir that I realized it had put rocket fuel under my memory and so many more things. I was thinking, maybe I should have written about that. No, I'm glad I didn't write about that bit. Or maybe that's another story for some other time. And I think one of the things, and in fact, the other day, I said this to a, a writer friend that I think almost my writing memoir should sort of come with a, a health warning that, you know, it, 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 it can linger the the impact of going back into that time and place and it's really funny because my brother only read it just recently and oh, within really? a matter of weeks he has read it three times and it's really I think had an emotional impact on him and so it's oh my gosh you don't think about the impact it has on other people although one of my cousins read an early draft basically when I I said to her, you know, just could you just check it to make sure no one's going to get really upset? <laughs> I have a very big extended family and I will hear about it. And uh, one of my aunts read it and, and was very gracious, even though she, you know, some of it was painful for her to read. Um, but it's interesting because my cousin came back to me and said, I remember when, this has made me remember this. And, and, and my aunt said, oh, of course, I remember when. And then suddenly you find that it's, it's like throwing 
you know, that stone out into the, the lake and you see all the ripples coming back to you. And I think that having written a memoir, and I don't know if this is the same for everybody, but I suspect something of this type is that it keeps coming back to you time and time again because you've, 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 unleashed, you've unleashed the memory door, you've opened it, and, and it's, it's a Pandora's box. Definitely. Does that, does yes. that your question? Yes, <laughs> it does. I think, I think there's so much because there was so much in there that was so special and unique, and there was also so much about that time period and mm-hmm. what was happening in that time. And one of the things I think writers struggle with or that I hear people talking about is that they think that there can't be anything particularly special about them and their experience. And there is this putting up on a pedestal of writers. And absolutely, people have this particularly with memoir and they think, oh, what would I have to say? And yet, as you said, there were definitely things that were quite unusual. And I think particular to your family Mm -hmm. and having a large family definitely gives you more access to more (laughs) stories and more opportunities. And at the same time, I think we all, we all deserve to look at our story and say, well, what is unique and special about it? And did you have any thoughts at first where you, where you had a bit of a blind spot to wait a minute, this is actually quite unusual. And there is something worth telling. I I think I knew that aspects of my parents' history were a bit unusual when I was a kid. (laughs) Because no one else I knew had parents who had sort of decided to up sticks at sort of 22 and go and live in a five foot by eight foot, you know, caravan in a field so they could do farm work just to get away from bomb sites and and the terror of of being of war and just being that having that freedom at a time when people didn't do that. I mean, I used to joke to my mum. You know, when I was about 16, she would say, oh, my gosh, you're not going to become a hippie, are you? And I said, well, look, you had a hippie wedding. And, and she said, what do you mean? I said, you had a big bunch of flowers, didn't you? <laughs> no, but, um, I think it, it's interesting how people often think that their ordinariness, they don't see beyond what they see as because they live their lives. Therefore, they were used to it. And I'll give an example of that. I was once doing a reading and this lovely lady came up to me and uh, very sprightly at the time, probably in her 70s, early 70s or something. And she said, you know, she said, I was, she looked around as if she was telling me a really big secret and the the CIA might be down on her in a ton, like a ton of bricks. She said, I was a code breaker in the Pacific theater during the war. Do you think anybody would be interested in my story? I said, (laughs) (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) I said, you have to write about that, about being a young American. I mean, what was she, early 20s, in the war, in the Pacific theater as a code breaker? I would say so. And yet she thought it was quite ordinary, you know, because everybody did something. And you know, then you, it's, I think also this after you've, after these things that people do that are so different is how do you then, how do you then become, do the ordinary things? And, and I think sometimes people find that they can't because they've always got an attitude that's a bit off the wall. I think my parents always had that, a certain attitude that was very, um, even though they appeared quite ordinary people, in many ways, doing their ordinary work. And I use the word ordinary sort of underlined and, and sort of, in, let's say, in italics there. But um, but really, they always had a different way of looking at the world. And I think that was something to draw upon, you know. And sometimes it was a very harsh way of looking at the world, uh, particularly with us, because they had endured so much during the war and then in the years afterwards. It was a case of, well, you know, you better step up to the plate. You can't have any whining around here, you know. Um, and, and, you know, as you know, even getting over, getting the way illness was treated, well, oh, you'll get over that, you know. And in the end, uh, we know my brother nearly died over one yeah. of those, well, you'll get over that moments. <laughs> you know, uh, it was it's very um, matter of fact, you know. So um, I've probably gone off. No, not at all. I'm that was another question that I had actually was about your having an early stay in hospital and it being sort of understood that you would be on your own there. And I wondered 
if in some ways that experience and, and all of these experiences where you were really dealing with a lot at quite a young age and running the show as the older sister handling, you know, getting your yeah. brother home and lots of situations like that, where you took on a lot of responsibility and had to do it without someone there showing you how to do it. And I'm wondering if that was helpful as a writer, because in many ways we have to navigate these things and no one can tell us, well, this is what you need to do next in this story. There's no plan. It all has yeah. to be figured out on our own. And I'm wondering if there's been any connection or, or thoughts you've thought between those two sorts I of experiences. I think it does that to you in life, but what it does give is that it's not confidence is, is not the right word. It's almost, well, you know what? I've got to jump off this hill. So I'm going to have to trust that I'm going to land on my feet or I'm going to fly, you know, because I've got to do this because no one else is going to do this thing. And certainly, I mean, there was also that earlier um, experience of being in hospital, and I, which I can't remember, um, at 15 months old when I had a, a very bad uh, accident in the home. I can remember things up to the accident and then boom. And I think even though there is no sort of actual memory, um, there was something there about being away from my parents for so long. You know, my, par my parents weren't allowed to stay in the hospital as my mother was later when my brother was ill. Um, and I was in the hospital for some weeks so even as a little girl, I had that, it was kind of suddenly built into me that, that even though I didn't understand it and I have no visceral memory of it, it was there, that independence. And then later on, you know, we find out that I'm a little bit accident prone when I had the smash my teeth in. I do remember, I was three and I do remember waking up in the hospital all alone. Mm. But then thinking, looking around, I remember <laughs> looking around and being aware that there were no teeth in my head uh, or very few left. And, and then the nurse coming up and saying, would you like some ice cream? Because that's what they give you when you're a little kid and you've got something. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, I think I would like some ice cream. And I didn't cry. I never cried. Um, so there was that, I think, a, a, a fierce sort of little independent, or it's not so much an independent streak. It was a little streak of knowing I had to, I had to deal with this. And it's important to point out that I, you know, other children were in the same boat because, you know, not all parents could get, especially if you lived in a rural area, you couldn't get in to see your child every day if they were in the hospital. You you couldn't just couldn't do it if you didn't have a car. You know, um, so that would have been true of other people at that time. You know, we live in a very different time now. And uh, um, when, you know, so much is restricted to keep children safe. And um, I'm, I'm not saying that I would have done anything different had I had children. I would probably have been over, completely over the top, actually. But... Um, <laughs> You know, so where are you going? What do you mean you're going into the other room? Come back here. <laughs> but, um, you know, my parents were <clears throat> were quite the opposite. They, they allowed a lot and they demanded a lot because much had been demanded of them. And that's true of my cousins too, um, very much so. My cousins are all, uh, all grew up in that fiercely independent way because it was expected of them. And I think as a writer, you know, coming back to what that does for you as a writer, <clears throat> I think it makes you, there was a point where I just felt I had to be brave. And interestingly enough, when I sent out to 10 agents, you know, my, cause I did that, you know, blanket thing, the, my, my first pages of my first ever novel completely on spec, will I ever get an agent? You know, didn't know I'd gone through the book like you do. It was really interesting because it was actually following rather a bad horseback riding accident. Mm. And I, it gave me an opportunity to finish the novel that I'd started because I was looking at quite a long period of time at home in a rural area, no public transport, couldn't drive, you know, couldn't use my right arm. There was all this sort of stuff going on. And I'm because of the family work ethic, you know, I couldn't bear the thought 
of three or four months and nothing to show for it except getting better. I mean, what was that going to do? <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to do? So I, I desperately wanted to finish this novel. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to finish it. And funnily enough, one of my friends, Bay, a Bay Area writer, her name's Adele Lara, I had gone to her house. My husband dropped me off. I was getting bored stiff and with my little structure and like, you know, oh. it was just awful. And uh, I had major surgery here. I've, I'm bionic. I have spare parts. And um, she said to me, well, now's the time for you to finish that novel. And I said, well, look, you know, I have my right arm. And she said, well, you've got a left hand, haven't you? Get to work with that. And, and that was just the kind of attitude I needed because it's what my mother would have said. Perfect. So I finished the book finished the first draft and there was that sense of well what's the worst that can happen what's an editor going to do read this and come and break my other arm because they don't like it you know <laughs> what's, what's the worst that can happen really so be brave just send them out and find out what happens and I, I think I've sort of been like that ever since even though it's risky I did that with my standalone novel The Care and Management of Lies I did it with what would Maisie do? It's just like, you know, I want to do this. Let's just see how it goes. And I very much felt like that with the memoir. Hmm. You know, I'm going to write it anyway. So let's just see how it goes, see if anybody's interested, you know? And so I think there was uh, definitely something, I mean, heck, here's something I always say to other writers when they say to me, you know, particularly... Um, when I've done a workshop, for example, as part of a, a writer's conference, and people are very afraid sometimes of, and quite rightly so, I, I totally get it, of send, sending out their work and showing it to people. And it's, it's, it's like your baby, you know, and you're putting it in the baby carriage and walking down the street for the first time and you want everybody to say, oh, my gosh, they're cute, you know, and things like that. And what a beautiful baby. But here's one of something that I totally and utterly believe in, that there are people in this world that would give their eye teeth to have the freedom that I have to write whatever I will write within reason, you know. Um, I was raised in effectively a free country. I'm living in what is still just a free country. And I am very fortunate. What... Who am I to say I'm afraid to send out my work when there are people just even lifting a pencil to the page, never mind having a computer, that is a risk to their lives? I don't know if I explained myself very well, but yes, it's just absolutely. Like, who am I to be afraid when there are other people that would love to be in my position of writing fiction, which is basically, as Lee Child said in his book, The Heroes, you know, things that never happened to people who never existed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I think taking, the, when I think of that, it's taking that leap, you know what, I'm, I can do that. I can do that. Absolutely. Not that I'm not scared sometimes, I am, but it's, it's a case of who am I not to? And because I have that freedom, I will use it. And I have written some controversial things that people don't like. So, you know, what the heck? <laughs> no yeah. one's turned up at my door yet. <laughs> well, that's good. You don't want I'll that. I'll deal with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think that's so important because I think we do spend so much time thinking about why it won't work out. And maybe we spend so much time thinking about like that big basket that everyone's throwing the unsolicited manuscripts into I think uh, we also don't think, well, they need to publish something, you know, there yeah. needs to be a book out there to publish. And if we have an idea, why not pursue it? Exactly. And there's another thing It's something my mm -hmm. husband said to me when I finished Maisie Dobbs and it was like, oh, I'm going to send this out. I'm getting really brave. And he said, Jackie, you finished the manuscript. You're in the game. And he said, every step of the way, it's, it's a win. You finished the manuscript. That's a win. Some people give up. If you finish your first chapter, that's a win. You're in the game. If you finish the second chapter, you're even further in the game. If you finish the manuscript, by gosh, you're in the game. If you get a letter that says, this is really interesting, great, interested, but not something we can publish at the moment, you're still in the game. You know, you just got to keep heading towards the goal. You just hold on to that as a writer. I think it's so important to, to know 
I'm in the game. I'm going to play this game the best way I can. And I'm going to see if I can get a goal, you know? Yes. And I, I think <clears throat> as writers, we are so good at um, taking ourselves down at times, aren't we? We're so good at that, you know. Uh, oh, this is never good enough. You, know, you, you wrote it. You're in the game. <laughs> Go for it, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I really believe in that. I definitely do too. Yeah. And I'm interested as, as being in the game because you are in the game with a very well-read series and yet you have stepped away from it to do different things like a standalone novel and a decision to do a memoir. So I'm wondering... How does that fit in? Do you have this momentum that comes through like, oh, I've got mm -hmm. another idea for Maisie, but I've also got this other idea. How do you sort through what feels like the right project for you when having an ongoing series? Well, <clears throat> it's knowing, it's, I, I think it's, it's not so much knowing when to stand back. It's also being able to stand back and saying, I mean, for example, when I wrote The Care and Management of Lies, you know, that was a very big risk. I didn't know if a, my publisher would want it. But my, I think my publisher also knew that, you know, she's going to write this anyway, so we might as well read it. You know, she's, because I said to my husband, I said, you know, I'm, 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 I might, we might be in the poorhouse. I might be in the poorhouse because I'm not, I don't want to write that particular thing this year. I want to write this thing. And he's like, oh, you know, just go for it. You know, we'll deal with whatever. And, um, and the same with the memoir. There was very much a, a point though and it's funny because I came back to it there was a point when I realized about 18 it was about 18 months ago that I wanted to step away from writing about war or I wanted to do it in a different way um, and even though that comes up in my memoir how could it not I've written very much about the things that sustain me as well and and my long time relation to, for example, the land and the natural world and to, um, you know, those connections that sustain me as an individual. But there was a point, you know, when I realized that, you know, I, like most authors, I do a phenomenal amount of research. I have to get into my character's heads and my character, my main character and uh, Maisie Jobs and the, uh, her cadre of uh, other characters that it, it's like um, it's 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 like a uh, was a repertory theatre with a permanent cast. Um, they they're living in very troubling times, so I have to it, immerse myself in those times from different angles. And you know what? It's war is a very difficult place to be, and I found that I was sort of living in that space. And I wanted to take a break from living in that space. So in the last year, and in fact, it was really funny because I will be perfectly honest, I had a little meltdown when I was, I was actually ill. I was in London and mm. about eight, oh, about um, oh, 18 months, something like that ago. It was, it was winter, really bad weather. And I came down with everything that you, you don't want to come down with and had to stay there. And also the airport was closed due to the weather. Oh, and man. I thought I have to, and that's when I decided to step away from Maisie Dobbs. I didn't know I would end up writing the memoir, but I thought I would. But I also wrote other things. And one of the first things I wrote was a comedy because mm. I wanted to write something. I had to take myself out of that wartime space. And I wrote a comedy and all the characters were dogs. And it was published in an anthology. I, I had great fun. I actually wanted to do a series based upon all these dogs. I was having so much fun. And, uh, and, and maybe some people would have read the Wagatha Labsey Secret Dog Detective Alliance. And um, it was great fun. It was a dog noir story. <laughs> it was really great fun. And I wrote articles and essays. Uh, I actually wrote a long form essay on writing about war for an anthology and, and interviewed other writers and was really interested in their responses to what that did to them. So I stepped away from it, but I also looked at it from different angles. Um, in this anthology, A Shattering Glass, I wrote about women working on the, at the, let's say, the, the sharp end of wildfire management, which was a different kind of war, you know. 
So I think um, I think one of the things is that as a writer, I completely believe in cross training. If you're an athlete, you know, one of the, I, I'm, I happen to love dressage. It's something I do. One mm -hmm. of the, the, the finest dressage riders in the world, uh, Charlotte Dujardin, she doesn't only ride horses every day. She swims, she works out, she does, you know, her cardio training, which is why she's probably the best. And you see other athletes, that's what they do. If we're writers and we only stick to what we write all the time and that is our professional job, I and for me it's writing a, a series of historical mysteries or in that realm, then how can I keep the other muscles that are really important to sustain me as a writer? I'm no poet, but I will mess around with poetry because even fiction has rhythm. You know, I write nonfiction because it's, 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 hones my research and interviewing skills. And I, and, and also it make, I'm interested in people. It keeps that part alive. And one of the things that write, um, I've learned more about writing anything from studying memoir than I have probably any other field because in memoir, you have to bring the camera in, you zoom the camera into certain things, you give a landscape and others. It's almost filmic, the technique that you use. Um, so I, I, I really believe that writers, you know, to be nourished as a writer, you have to cross train. Do not be afraid of cross training, even if you're terrible at poetry like I am. You know, I mean, it's just like <laughs> the bird sat on the hill, you know, and took a little pill. But no, it's not that bad. But um, <laughs> And reading poetry and reading well beyond the, 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 the literary form that you immerse yourself in as a professional writer. That's so important. I think it's so yeah. important. Get those, so you know, literary muscles going. Yes. <laughs> Have a this is my new. This is my new mantra, literary cross-training. It's so yeah. good. I think so, because I think we think so often about the reader. And of course, we want the reader to enjoy what we write and we want to produce something valuable. But we spend more time writing it than anyone is going to spend reading it, even if it's their favorite book and even if they read it yeah. over again. Even yeah. your brother reading the memoir three times. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's important, especially in this period of time, to think about how is this going to impact me to write this right now? And I completely mm -hmm. understand. You started a series where people were coming out of war and moving away from it. And a character who was really profoundly shattered by it, putting herself back together. And then mm -hmm. to write up to the point where, oh man, they're going right back into it. Yeah. I can well imagine not wanting to go in there it, and needing to go somewhere else. It Exactly. I mean, to be quite right. I also have, um, I started scoping out a completely different series, which is, is going to be more sort of comedic because I, I needed to do that. And um, I remember actually speaking to, to Reese Bowen about the same thing. And one of the reasons she started her Lady Georgie series is because she said, I wanted to do something that was different and fun, you know, that was not quite as serious as some of my other work. And um, I have spoken to writers and particularly um, in, um, it was for private uh, an anthology called Private Investigations, and it was about sort of mystery writers revealing the secrets of, of their life. And um, uh, you know, J Jeff Shara shared with me that uh, in his writing, you know, how that impacts him, and and that, that it, it's it just can if you're researching about something like war, just as if it would be the same if it's illness um, so on. And let's face it, we all know how a pandemic affects us all. Um, we didn't which know is that a, before. A type of, <laughs> which is a type of war, you know. Um, and when you're looking at what people have endured and gone through, you, you know, it, it has an emotional impact. It has an emotional impact. Um, Adam Hochschild, who has written nonfiction focusing on war, 
um, I interviewed him for that uh, essay and, and he had the same thoughts, you know, that there were things that really stood out, people he will never forget interviewing. And in fact, when I wrote The Care and Management of Lies, which was uh, a novel set in the Great War, um, to understand, and this speaks to sort of another aspect of cross-training, what it's like to be in a, in a battle I actually read um, um, Karl Marlanti's book, that was one of the book uh, books I read, on what it's like to go to war. Completely different war. It was Vietnam for him. But he really got into that. And then there were other books I read set that were f- written by people in the era, era about which I write. But I was reading contemporary work as well because I absolutely had to get into the head of what is it like when you are just about to race in and face the guns? I had to be there. So, um, so I think also in terms of research, writers should not limit themselves to if they're writing about a specific histor- historical era, do not limit yourself to that era to try and understand how people think and feel. Because that's what we're trying to do when we write fiction about people who never who didn't do things that didn't exist and so on. It's actually one of the big questions you're asking is how would I feel if? And certainly I can go back to family stories and I can touch that feeling when a story was revealed to me, but I have to find that how would I feel if in any way that I can, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm at, as time of speaking, I'm not going to walk into a war zone myself because I probably will end up dead. But, <laughs> you know, but I have to find a way to be there to be able to write about it with some authenticity so that the reader can be there too. The reader has to, I have to take the reader with me. So, as a writer, you're also an advocate for, in, in your revision, you're also an advocate for the, the reader, although. The editor is the true advocate for the reader. Yeah, that's when your editor is gold dust for you as a writer. That's yes, yes. And so as you've gone into all of this, I think we talked about this a little bit the last time you were on, but I'm still curious about it because in this case, you're talking about doing it in fiction, but you've also gone into this from your own history. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's all of these things that you remember, but when all of the things that you remember, some of them are painful or difficult Mm -hmm. to remember. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, how you manage that when you go into this and you find this to give the reader and the picture is quite cinematic in the book. It's really, you're there. (laughs) I was there with you in it. I could see the I could see the house. I could see your brother's hand getting sucked into the 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 long angle. Yeah. And then you pulling the thing to stop it. I mean, there's lots of moments like that. And did you ever feel overwhelmed by it or was it always comforting going back there? And if it was difficult, how did you, how did you work with that? Um, You mean overwhelmed by the the memory Mm. as it were. I think actually in a way, writing things down is very therapeutic. You don't realize it when you're doing, because you're getting it out from inside and putting it on a page. It doesn't mean to say it leaves you because it doesn't. But there are times when you can look back and see, you know, I, things that actually at the time I thought were funny, you know, we joke about it and think, you know, that wasn't that funny really. It was really scary. And realizing that it was scary, you know, I mean, having to really, I mean, my parents never got how scared I was on the day when I thought my brother was going to die, when I didn't know how to deal with his pain. And I was only 11 years old and they were out at work. And I mean, to be fair, as I point out in the book, there, there was a precedent. I, I had had stomach aches my entire life. Um, so they probably thought, you know, well, there's another, you know, it's going to go away. And the doctor said it was going to go away anyway, because he's only got a bug, except I was his big sister and I knew it wasn't a bug. I knew it was something serious, but you're a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think really looking back at my, my young self and remembering just how scared I was. And I think for my brother as a reader who was close to 
realizing my big sister was terrified, except, you know, my brother's sort of, he's getting on now and he's six foot two. You yeah. know? <laughs> but realizing that as kids, you know, I was, I was scared for him a lot of the time because I was so, had to be responsible for him. Um, so I think understanding it's, it, it's, it does have a certain, I don't know, it's like a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's, it, it's, it's good to write these things down. It's, it's a story and it's a story of a different place and time when so many kids had to be, and, and, and are today have to be very responsible for their siblings. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was uh, knowing just how much had been deflected as well, because the focus was obviously on my brother I was going through something at the same time, but it wasn't important, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And now realizing, you know what, I, I was, um, I, I know that when, in, in, when they were alive, my parents never quite got how, I, how that impacted me. Um, so putting it on the page was quite an experience and remembering and knowing that I, I knew so many, I mean, I remembered so many of the details because fear kind of heightens your your memory of the time and, uh, you know, the, even the little things, you know, and some, th- I left out as many stories as I put in easily. So. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure with a family that large, I can't yeah. imagine you could go on and on, but yeah. there, it was such a, I think a treasure. And the thing that, that stuck with me in a, reading it in a particularly challenging year I find it very comforting to read stories of people who have endured through difficult situations when it feels like we're facing a challenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably the only time the entire world has faced the same challenge, but but knowing, okay, these people faced this situation and got through it and had stories that are in many cases joyful to accompany that, I found it incredibly optimistic. And I think it's a gift to have something like that to read in this time and place. Well, well, thank you very much. It's, it's the people that have read it so far have said pretty much the same thing. And I think one of the things that, I, I think there are two things here. Number one is that probably with some exceptions, since the end of the Second World War, people have lived... I don't want to say charmed lives, but we haven't had the big catastrophic international global event. I can remember, for example, when I was a little girl, because I, I, I've got this, you know, burden of a very long memory. You know, um, when we went back to London for a period of time, and I was just a toddler, but I think it was because everything was so new to me. I I remembered so much, but you know, people would line up around the block to get um, a polio shot or a smallpox shot. And there was a time when we didn't have those, those vaccinations. We didn't have antibiotics. We, you know, children in the early part of the last century, you know, children were dying of diphtheria, scarlet fever, you know, and, and all those sorts of things. And there was a flu pandemic and there was a World War I and a World War II. And we've we've had a pretty charmed time. Therefore, our I think how our um, tolerance of risk is very very low. I remember uh, just recently I read about this doctor of a certain age saying <clears throat> that he remembered when he was a kid, his parents were very careful. And this was here in America about how many children played together and things like that because of the polio epidemics. Mm. And and so we have that. We've there's. Um, so perhaps we've lost some of our resilience and so on. But I think also, on a very positive note, the fact that we are all here means that our ancestors going back 100,000 years have endured. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. They got through those epidemics. They got through cholera. They got through war. They got through smallpox. Goodness knows what else. And here we are today, and we wouldn't be here if they hadn't got through all that. And that ability to endure, that resilience is in our DNA. We just have to activate it. And we have to do what we need to do. And if that means wearing a mask, we have to do it. You know, how bad could it be? People can still see my eyes smiling, you know. 
<laughs> and I, I think, and as a writer, that gives you a lot of material emotionally, spiritually, and uh, literally in, in what you will write about because of all that has gone before. You can draw upon any of that. I don't care whether you're writing science fiction, historical fiction, contemporary literary fiction. We have so much to draw upon to tell stories. And we learn by stories. People connect with story. And it, I mean, it, it's very exciting as a writer. If you can jump off that cliff and say, I'm in the game, then as a writer, you know, you're very, you've got so much to work with. You know, I'm almost inspired to go away and write something right now. But, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I truly believe that. But maybe it's because I came to writing and had that courage later in life. It didn't, it, it was just like my horseback riding. Every time I get on my horse, I feel absolutely privileged and blessed because it was something I wanted as a child that I didn't ever, wasn't able to make happen until I was an adult. Therefore, it was precious. Writing. I wanted to be a writer as a child. It didn't happen in my 20s because of, I often think, why didn't I just do that? No, I, I just, it, it just wasn't available to me uh, for my own reasons, perhaps more than anything, reasons of confidence and so on and so forth. But now having come to it, you know, sort of in my, I came to it in my late 30s when I um, was writing as a, uh, you know, writing articles, essays, and also was a correspondent for international education journals and so on, getting the clips. Um, it's, 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 it, I think, I, I think it's a gift to be able to, to do this job. And whether you have a day job or not, it's a gift. And there's so much to work with today and from the past. And you know, the contribution we make to people's entertainment, to their understanding of the world, to their connections is it's a, it's a great, it's a great job. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> Definitely. I, I mean, I love what I do. I love what I do. I, I don't love it every single day, but I love what I do. Some days I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It's been such a joy speaking to you again, and I'm so glad we were able to have you back on to speak about next uh, next year. This time we'll be laughing. Yeah, this time next year we'll be laughing. This time next year we'll be laughing. We'll cut <laughs> that out. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I've, I, I I always love talking to you. It's, you ask really good questions, and um, it's it's a lovely. This is a great forum. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.